you. I'm going to talk softly because I'm at the uh, last part of my vocal cords, I think. And uh, We needed that rain, but it came all in like 30 minutes, didn't it? <laughs> I looked out my window this afternoon and the opposite side of Atlanta Highway didn't exist. <laughs> there was a flood going there, but uh, we welcomed the cooler temperatures and I've been told that we're going to be having a scattered showers for the next couple of days, so that's, uh, that's good news. But unfortunately, it also says it's going to stay in the mid-90s. So. Uh, but summer is not over yet. Clearly, that's evident. And uh, we are on the first Wednesday night of our quarter. We begin a new class uh, on this uh, Wednesday night. We've, I've enjoyed tremendously the uh, look at the prophets, and uh, I hope you have too. And uh, on Sunday morning in the auditorium, we've been doing, uh, if you were there, uh, uh, roots of two major uh, religious practices. We did for about seven weeks the roots of Catholicism, how it originated, how it started, how it grew to be what it is now, with all of its rituals, its power structure, its uh, practices, its doctrines. In seven weeks, you can't get it all in, but uh, it is helpful sometimes to understand how these things build up. They start with minor than major modifications, the way the early church did. Uh, people claim to have revelation from God. They still claim to have revelation from God, and, and thus they make modifications, approve or disapprove of things based upon uh, the more or less uh, supposition that they have a private line to God. Either they do or they don't. The roots of Catholicism, uh, the study of that taught us that uh, um, this is how things go awry. Uh, good intentions and well-meaning people can, when they detach from Scripture, detach from the real story, they can be lost. The roots of Islam lie in a, in a, in a caravan manager back in the 7th century. That's what we studied in Sunday mornings as well. The roots of Islam. Today, the ugly head of jihad is raising its head. And, and uh, to understand the story fully, you have to go back to the beginning, to the roots, to the beginning. And that's what in a sense, motivated me to think that maybe this might be good for us. Not that you haven't read the first 12 chapters of Acts. Our roots, 12 Wednesday nights, um, 12 uh, chapters, and 12 years. There happens to be a coincidence of 12 going on with this. The uh, three-month period that we've allotted for September, October, November for our classes in general we shift about every quarter. Um, when you count out uh, some Wednesday nights for special events, leaves us with 12. And there are 12 chapters uh, in the book of Acts, the first 12. That's all we're going to look at or plan to look at in these Wednesday nights. And uh, it covers about 12 years, from about the year 30 A.D. to about the year 42 A.D. We're going to look at our roots. Um, again, nothing that I expect that is new, but a return to our roots, to where we began, to where... The movement of the way of Jesus of Nazareth began. That's in a sense what the restoration leaders had to call on. Forget credos, man-made documents. And go back to beginning. And there are two things that we need to study and know well. The life of Christ, it'd be one, the life of the founder. And two, the life of the early Christian community. Not because it was perfect. And in fact, that's very much what the book of Acts shows. It's what letters like 1 Corinthians and Colossians show. The early church had a tendency to break up into preacheritis and follow a speaker rather than the messenger 
rather than the message, the messenger. They had that. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 1, and again later in chapter 3, uh, did, did I die on a cross? <laughs> Don't be a fan of mine. Don't be a fan of Apollos. Don't be a fan of Peter or uh, uh, don't break up, he says to the Corinthian church. There was already that tendency then, the tendency towards denominations or following the message of a messenger rather than the message of the crucified Messiah and crucified Christ. Paul said, I preach crucified Christ and that's all. Don't follow me. It's not about me. We have to go back to the roots to the beginning. We have to do it periodically. We have to do it often. The first 12 chapters will get us from about the year 30 in Jerusalem to about the year 42, something like that. The first 12 years in 12 Wednesday nights and basically in 12 chapters. So that means they've got to do about a tw- chapter a day, chapter Wednesday night. Uh, that's, uh, that's radical. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to start real quick, and please, I welcome your introduction anytime. Why acts? Why acts of the apostles? Why know it so deeply that you can not necessarily quote it chapter and verse, although chapter would be good, um, to know where to find basic components. It's an important resource document for us all. It's a pivotal piece of literature. Even those that don't uh, believe in the resurrected Lord of the writer of this, uh, of this book called the Book of Acts, even they recognize it as a critical piece of literature coming out of the first century A.D., It was the only book, we have four for the life of Christ, but only one that tells the story of how the apostles fulfilled the commission they received the moment that Jesus ascended into heaven. And that's one thing we'll want to retrieve tonight. Go back to that account that is recorded at the end of one of the Gospels, but is recorded for sure here in the book of Acts chapter 1. Christ ascending and leaving instructions. There's last conversations with the apostles before he ascended into heaven. It's a vital book between the lives of Christ and the prison epistles and the epistles of, of Paul and Peter and James and others that are, that are in the rest of the New Testament. It gives us fantastic background material to understand those epistles better. Without it, there would be a vacuum. There would be something missing. It is a second volume to, to two. It is the second of books that a man that didn't set out in life to be a man of literature and be well-published and known 20 centuries later. I don't know what he planned to do, but knowing that he was a doctor, a physician, I reckon that his family encouraged him to go to law school and they had plans for his life. And if he was a Gentile, like we think, then he had different plans than the ones that played out. But somewhere along the way, he encountered the resurrected Christ, the news uh, the gospel, somebody preached to him the resurrected gospel. It changed his life forever. And later on in his life, towards the end, he felt compelled and guided by the Holy Spirit to write down for the believers of the future the story of the life of Christ and the story of the uh, apostolic times. And that's what we're looking at. That's why the book of Acts. He was not trained in literature as best I know. But truly, it is hard not to ruin his story as a teacher or as, a, as a, uh, someone who has to convey that message to somebody else. You'd like to just read it like it is, not touch it, because it's fascinating narrative. And uh, there are days, 
There are moments when all of us need uh, excitement about who we are, what we've inherited, what we have, our faith in Christ. We need to be renewed a shot on the arm uh, to remember, wow, I'm a part of a 2,000-year-old movement, uh, and uh, I have a, 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 a job in it, and, and I'm here put by God in the 21st century now to, to carry it on, to carry like a relay race, to carry the baton to, to somebody else and pass it on to future generations until Christ returns. That's the whole point. There are many that are rejecting the book of Acts as anything worth being a pattern. There are liberal churches within our, our fellowship that have begun to uh, detach from the book of Acts because they don't want to follow it as a pattern. They want more freedom to do things that don't appear to be validated or approved in first century practice during apostolic times. Um, I recommend highly that you resist that, that urge, that tendency. Uh, the book of Acts is inspired as best I know and not in uh, uh, just a few details that we choose, pick and choose here and there. But if it's inspired, it's inspired totally, <laughs> including the uh, evidence of patterns that we get on how to best handle things that come up in the 21st century in the practice of church. And yes, there are some things that the first century didn't deal with. We have things they didn't deal with, and they had things we don't have to deal with. But in the core of what's embedded in this narrative, in the story of the early church, and its expansive growth, in that uh, exponential growth from 120 scared people to to hundreds of thousands by, the, by later times, there is a pattern. A pattern that God wants us to look at and I think imitate. Imitate when they do things right. Obviously not when they do things wrong. Because that happens as well. The titles, as you know, the chapters and verses are placed by translators later. And so are the titles. It's called Acts of the Apostles, but it would be called Acts of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that commentators have noticed about this wonderful book is that in like... A picture like a tapestry that is held together by key strands. Uh, and those of you who so know what I'm talking about. Um, the Holy Spirit seems to weave his way through all of the stories and all of the chapters. Holding it together. Making it make sense. And in fact it doesn't make sense. The things that are happened. The things that are told. Unless the Holy Spirit's involved. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit. In one sense. That's one other title you give it. It's definitely not all the acts of the apostles. There's a picking and choosing. There are 12 apostles when you open up in chapter 1. But only three of them will be highlighted in the, the rest of the book. Tradition tells a, a lot, uh, too much, about what happened to the other nine, how they died, where they preached, where they traveled. But we have no evidence for it, so we can't rely on tradition. What we know for sure is in the book of Acts. And it focuses not on 12, but on three. It focuses on three. That's called selectivity. And it's what all the gospel writers have to practice. And it's what Luke will practice in the book of Acts too. He can't tell us everything that happened in all of the chapters in 32 years, 28 chapters. No way. He has to be selective. So that's what's going to happen as well. I've been referring to the author as Luke. We are 90... 8% sure. I'll make up a number there. We are highly sure about it. There are a lot of evidences to the fact that he wrote that book. 
I say no certainty because it's not 100%, but the evidence that he was the author is extensive. Like, for example, in about 170, about a century after the book of Luke and the Gospel of, the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke were written, uh, there is a list called the Muratorian Canon from about 170 AD. It was found by a guy called Muratore, and in it has a list of what the church of the late 2nd century was listing as things that need to be preserved, protected in the canon. And it mentions the book of Acts and attributes it to Luke. There's another external evidence. It's the first church father, Eusebius is his name. We're talking early 4th century, 320, something like that, 325. In his ecclesiastical history, he says Luke wrote this. So sent down from the early Christian community was the, the news, the, the information, that while they never, we didn't have originals of the book of Acts, we don't have any originals of any of the New Testament, we have copies that Christians made as they passed it around, and none of them are signed. And um, who's it by then is by Luke, says Eusebius. Other things that we have noticed before about internal evidence that Luke is the author are in the fact that he clearly has traveled with Paul and as we look at all the traveling companions that Paul had in his missionary journeys, the one that uh, sticks out as being the one that's with him, especially in those sections called the we passages, where in the book of Acts it goes from telling the story in the third person, it goes to telling the story in the first person plural, we, that's clearly pointing the picture, even though he doesn't want it on himself, to Luke. Luke. Luke the physician. In one of Paul's letters that he wrote around 62, he will make mention in his closing comments about uh, Luke, the physician. And he's talking about the profession that we already uh, supposed of this gentleman. He was educated, and uh, he uses terms in the book of Acts like uh, when Paul is bitten by a viper, uh, when in... Uh, um, his gospel, Jesus make a reference to it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into heaven. Then the word for needle that he uses there is a surgical needle rather than a sewing needle. And when in the original Greek you have things like that, then you say, hey, why is he using that term? This guy must be a doctor, must be a physician. There's one more thing. There's passion in Luke. He's a pioneer of Christian apologetics, and it shows through in the way he tells the story of the first 12 years of early Christianity. He's wanting to defend it. Christianity will be under attack from the get-go. For the first 30 years, it will be under the attack of Jewish authorities, Sanhedrin, high priest. They will be the ones that will be trying to stop that story from playing out. They thought they had it when they crucified Jesus. They were wrong. They tried to stop the resurrection of Jesus by putting 16 guards in front of the tomb. <laughs> That's going to fail, clearly. And then they tried to stop in various synagogues, in various efforts, the early church in Jerusalem and beyond. He's going to be a pioneer in defending Christianity from its attacks. Romans are not on the scene yet. They will become enemies of the, the way of Jesus of Nazareth after this book is written, really around 65. So it's really, it's under attack. It's being libeled. It's being accused of being various things. And this is 
um, who Luke is. He's a doctor, he's a physician, he's a converted Christian from pagan Gentile background, we think. And he wrote the book, probably, in the 60s. There are three options to when the book of Acts was written. It uh, was definitely written between, in the second half of the first century. So between the time of Nero, the mid-50s, to the Vespasian family, which is uh, in the 90s. And we can be more definite than that. Three options. It was either written in 62, because that's the last year that the book of Acts closes. When you close Acts chapter 28, you're in the year 62. So maybe he couldn't write anymore because it hadn't happened yet. But I would suggest the second one, B, as a better option. I think that it was written after two of the apostles have been taken home. In the year 65, a fire breaks out in Rome, and the first localized persecution in the capital of Christians happens because the emperor Nero trying to find somebody guilty of it, to blame for it. Christians are an incident. He rounds up about a thousand Christians in the capital and he uh, executes them, ties them up to poles and they are lit on fire, some of them, while the emperor himself is riding around in his chariot in Nero's gardens. In 65, there is a terrible event and by all accounts, we think that Peter and Paul are two of the 990 that died in it. The numbers that I'm giving you come from martyrology, so they're not reliable. And the tradition that Peter and Paul died there is not confirmed, but probable. Peter may have been put on a cross, if tradition is correct. Paul was probably executed with a sword across his neck, since he was a Roman soldier. The reason I say that B is probable for the book of Acts is because... Clearly, one of the objectives of Luke seems to be to ennoble, to spotlight the service of both Peter and Paul. Peter is the major one through which the story is told for the first 12 chapters. Then starting in chapter 13, it's Paul that's the major one through which he's told. Maybe Luke is trying to say, I love these men. They were key leaders. They're gone. And I want you to know what they did. I want you to know how, as imperfect as they were, they worked hard to take the gospel of Jesus uh, to the world. Peter, in his way in Jerusalem, the church there, burgeoning church of ten to 15,000 and beyond, and Paul going on those missionary journeys. I think that one of the motivations for writing the book of Acts is the apostles are dying out. The inspired apostles are dying out. The story needs to be told. And you need to know how vital these two men to the work of the church that's there. Both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are dedicated to the same guy. Theophilus is the name. Theophilus is a Greek word that combines lover of God or friend of God, Theophilus. There are, uh, it is the same name that's used in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, as it introduces, as it begins. It is not, I believe, a made-up name. One of the reasons is, in the ruins of Corinth, you will find inscriptions like those my finger is pointing at. Uh, That is Greek, and it's all in capital letters, and it's all continuous. But behind my my hand, right there, there is the uh, first few letters. There are Theophilon. That is the name of a 
Greek in Corinth that had that name. So they were using that name in that time. I don't know that it's this Theophilus. It probably isn't. Theophilus was probably an aristocratic Roman, and he's trying to tell them the story of where Christianity came from and what it's really about so they can make a fair assessment. Take it, accept it, or reject it, but at least know what it's about, what its founder said and did, and what the apostles did in those first uh, wonderful, incredible 30 years. So I'm going to suggest to you, before we get started with our reading tonight, of Acts chapter 1, that the purpose of the book of Acts, there's the purpose of God, and then there's what I can perceive to be the purpose of Luke, the inspired writer. And I'm going to uh, suggest the following, and you can take any of the ones out that you don't think are valid, and you can replace some others, maybe. He wanted to tell the story. Tell the story. Um, in this world of confusion, we've got to be clear about the story. We've got to always start with it. It starts with, do you really know Christ? And secondly, do you really know what Christianity is all about, the church? Do you really know? If you want to really know, you've got to get cut through all the denominations and all the traditions and acquisitions of man over 20 centuries. You've got to go back to the beginning. You've got to start with Acts. You've got to start with Acts 1. You've got to go there. Our roots before men and good intentions are not put layers of stuff on top. I think Luke wanted to present a history, so we need to read it that way. I think he wanted to defend Christianity from false charges that it didn't deserve, like cannibalism and being anti-patriotic and against the Roman government and all these false charges that started to be spread. He wanted to provide a guide for the church of the future. I don't know how old when he wrote this, but when we get towards the end of our life, we start thinking, okay, how do I leave some clarity for the next generation, for those to come after me? so that they can have not so hard a time in living out faith and doing what they need to do. Clarity. He wanted to provide a guide. Of course, inspired by God, too. I think he wanted to show that Christianity is going to win. If he wrote this in 65, in the aftermath of this persecution, clearly there had to be some discouraged Christians. Because now, not only the Jews have been against them, but now the Romans are turning against them. And that's going to be bad. That's going to be bad, not just for a decade. That's going to be bad until the year 313. The worst persecutions of Christians are going to take place under Diocletian in the 290s. Most lives lost to the faith are in the 290s. So there's a long line. The book of Revelation is about that. It's trying to prepare Christians for, well, martyrdom in some cases. And hang in there. Don't let go. We're going to win. That's what the book of Acts, I think, is trying to do, Luke's trying to say. Christianity has an amazing birth story. It's kind of like the child in the manger. You never expected him to be a king. Yet that's the reality. That's why the wise men came. It's, it's, it's a victorious movement that we're part of. That's why he wants you to be excited every time you look up part of the story. I think he wants to vindicate the memory of Paul. I don't, we're not going to deal with that. That's chapters 13 through 28. But Paul was highly attacked by his own fellow Jews because he was seen as a traitor. 
And I think that the second part of the book of Acts intentionally he uses Paul as a central because he wants to vindicate it in memory. We're going to follow chapters 1 through 12. And so that is our, our lot. Would you open up your uh, Bibles to Acts chapter 1? We'll begin. I'll have Acts chapter 1 in the ESV translation up there and uh, hope that you can read it. We do have new technology now. Wouldn't work for the first five minutes. <laughs> but it's working now. So I'm, I'm happy. Uh, if it breaks down, you know what we're going to do, right? What happened, what, three weeks ago when I tried preaching and had to revert back to the text? Well, here we are, Acts chapter 1. Please interrupt me anytime if you have a comment or a question, but uh, let's uh, go ahead and look at this chapter together tonight. Two things. Two things. <laughs> Last instructions. Before leaving. And two, there's a missing place at the table. Acts chapter 1 is about two things. Last instructions before leaving. And two, we've got to replace somebody at the table. There's somebody missing. So let's look at it that way. Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I'm going to, I've highlighted some things in red. Those might be things that you would have thought of or not, I'd like you to interject with comments before I leave a slide, a text. Make sure I don't go too fast. In my first book, this is volume two. If you want the whole story, you need to read volume one. This is volume two. O Theophilus, he refers to him in the Gospel of Luke as most excellent. That's a very high title, which makes us think Theophilus was uh, a high-ranking, Roman official. There are those who try to guess even which Theophilus, which family may belong to. Is in the year 65 Luke trying to convince some high-ranking Roman official, listen, Nero just accused us of setting a fire. We didn't. We wouldn't do that. You want to know really who we are? We're not some strange, exotic sect coming out of the East, which is how the Romans viewed all these All the strange things come out of the east, the eastern part of the Roman Empire. We're not that way. We are not a threat to you. We we are involved with politics, but we're not about politics. Our home is not here. Our home is there. We believe in afterlife. Do you? Most excellent Theophilus, I'm going to write this for you. But did Luke intend for somebody else to read it too? Well, obviously God did. Because it was preserved, sent down. Did Theophilus share his copy with somebody? There's all kinds of questions that are raised here. We don't know. But God meant for you and I to have this. So it's preserved. So it must be important. So it must be embedded in us, the story of our roots. In my first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. To do and to teach. You've heard this before. Christianity is... um, unique in many ways. It is different than man-made faiths or religions. 
One of the major aspects is, as Luke points out from the very beginning, you need to know both what he said and what he did. It's about action and it's about words. It's not just about words. You don't just read this thing. You've got to know what he did with it. So that's why we have four Gospels. So that each one of them can add and, and add on and tell you about miracles and then teachings. And then miracles and then teachings. Miracles are what he did. Uh, going to the cross is what he did. Um, moving to Capernaum is what he did. Teachings, Sermon on the Mount, and uh, the lessons about preparation that he gives to the apostles right before he goes to the cross. All that he did and what he taught. Until the day when he has taken up. So I'm coming, I'm picking up, says the storyteller Luke, in the day in which he was taken up. This had never happened before. Think of other events in the life of Jesus, in his ministry, for example. Because that's when miracles take place, supernatural events, signs that he is God. Um, We have no evidence of miracles before that, until the age of 30. I have no evidence of miracles. Jesus stumbled over rocks, got hungry, got tired, had sleep. All of the above. His humanity is there for the first 30 years. But when he came out, there was a signifying by God. At his baptism, there was the Holy Spirit, the dove that came down. There was a voice from heaven that said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. In this day, there's going to be a remarkable event, like reminiscent somewhat of the, well, transfiguration. Do you remember that? On a mountain in northern Galilee, with uh, two figures from the Old Testament that appear there to encourage Jesus as he's about to go to. That was a event in the life of Christ that screamed, this is the Son of God. Isn't that Moses? Isn't that Elijah? One's from the 15th century before Christ, the other one's from the 7th. What are they doing here? Aren't they dead? Yet they live. They're there to encourage Christ. Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John saw them rise, and that was amazing. And Jesus will say, don't tell any of the apostles what you saw until after the resurrection. And they will have to bite their tongue about that event. Well, here, it's the day in which he was taken up. After he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. Luke is telling you, listen to what he has to say to them in the last, in the last moments, last hours, last minutes. He presented himself after his suffering... That's why the term passion is used by some to talk about the last week of the life of Jesus. And in particular, of course, his arrest, his scourging, his crucifixion, and his death. After his suffering, by many proofs appearing to them according, and here's a number, 40. There are many numbers that appear in the biblical text, old and new. 12, 3, 10, 40. 40 days. 40 days. Um, Could have been 41, could have been 47, but it was 40. It's 40 days. There are 50 days between the two major holidays of the Jews. The Passover, where he instituted the Lord's Supper, and then he went to the cross. And then the second largest festivity in Judaism, which is Pentecost. Pentecost means 50 days in Greek. So there are 50 days. So there are three days for the tomb, 
40 days of appearances, and then he will say to the apostles, don't leave Jerusalem, stay here. What he means is for the next week, because something's going to happen, and that's chapter 2. It's called the day of Pentecost. It's called what happens, the birth of the church. Comments on this verses, anything you want to add? Our story begins on the day of Pentecost, and it's in chapter 2. But Luke wants you to have chapter 1 first. Verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I have no evidence that the apostles were ever baptized with water. I don't have any at least. They may have. I don't know. What I do know is this. Jesus says, I'm leaving. Instructions before leaving. You are not to go back to Galilee. You are not to take the weekend off to go do whatever you are planning. You are to stay here. You are to wait for something to happen. Day of Pentecost of the year 30 AD, I think. It's the day. The birthday of who we are, of our roots, of the church. That's where our story starts. That's where it all began. And Jesus gave instructions to the apostles who didn't know what to do when he was suddenly leaving. They had reveled in and enjoyed 40 days of appearances in Galilee and in Jerusalem. And now Jesus says, I'm leaving. I'll be back, but right now I'm leaving. And you need to stay in Jerusalem because you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells them it's going to happen. They don't know uh, exactly when, but they're going to find out in about six days. It's going to be on a major holiday. It's the day of Pentecost. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? There is that continued feeling that they don't quite get it sometimes. Are you going to restore Israel? Is this what it's all about? Notice by the reply of Jesus that he's still, in a sense, like a parent who's trying to say, I've told you many times, I'll tell you one more time. (laughs) He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You are not to worry about epochs or times or they had tried to ask him, you remember, when they were walking, when they were in Jerusalem before the crucifixion, they made some comment about the temple, how beautiful it was, and he flabbergasted them by saying, don't count on that, that's going to be gone. He meant gone in 40 years, the Romans are going to destroy it. They thought he meant, well, that's the end of time, no house of God. Time in, time's up. And Jesus says, no, no, and he separates the two. This temple is going to be gone before this generation is over. But the end of time, you are not to worry about when, times, seasons, you are simply to remain prepared. You need to understand that your job is to be prepared for whenever the, my second coming, the end of time, is. And yes, my second coming coincides with the end of time. It's not for you to know. Don't worry about that. 
You will receive power. He says to them, this is what you need to know. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. The word for witnesses in Greek is martyres, which, of course, is the origin for your word mortar. You're going to be my martyrs. And what's true is some of them will actually die for the faith, like James. James will die in Acts chapter 12 in our last Wednesday night. That is one of the saddest days in the early church. Another sad day is Acts 7, when Stephen is stoned. There are many sad days. Things don't always go hunky-dory downhill. In fact, they are persecuted by the Jews and are going to suffer greatly by Jewish kings and Jewish high priests. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And verse 8 is seen by all the words of Jesus to the apostles as the ones that Luke attaches himself to and says, that's it. That's the plan for how I'm going to tell you the story. How the gospel, like a, like a, a stone that's thrown into a very still water, when it hits the water, makes one concentric circle, then two, then three, then enlarges. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the ends of the earth, in my reading, is Rome. And that's where, by the way, the book of Acts stops. It's right there in Rome. The center of power, the center of the earth, the ends of the earth from Jerusalem. If you look at the map, that's the way kind of it looks like. When he had said these things, stop me if you want to add something. As they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were still gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who, you, who has, was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Wow. I ask myself sometimes, if I could have just been there, <laughs> seeing Jesus be lifted up. Except then I look at the reaction of the apostles. Going, going, going. No, no, no gone, no gone. Come back. <laughs> no gone. Come back. The jaws wide open reflect their feeling, their mood, I think, which is, no, no. We don't want to be left here alone. We don't want to handle this alone. Yet that's exactly what is going to happen. There's the plan. I've trained you for three years. You're ready. You're going to make mistakes. But you're ready. You've received what you need to know to carry on the torch. You don't need anything else. You will not be left alone. I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. I leave you the Holy Spirit. Don't leave Jerusalem. I'm going to give you a gift. It's going to come in a few days. Stay here. That gift is going to be to you, but it's also going to be to the church. The Apostle Paul later on in Ephesians 4, verse 11, will say, the apostles were a gift to the early church. To jumpstart this movement that you and I are part of. 
And they were given gifts so they could know things and do things. I can't do miracles. Um, and I don't have inspired knowledge. But I have what the apostles and the inspired writers left behind, which is a New Testament, which is a gift that was given to us by the early church and protected by God. Men of Galilee, two men say, in white robes. How do you, what do you take these to be? I've not let you talk at all. Who do you think the two men in white robes are? That's what I'm thinking too. So did they see with their eyes uh, two men in white robes? Uh, what do you think, Burl? Thank you. So, consequently, I think it's perfectly appropriate for us to ascribe the characteristics of messengers of God to these people. Which is what an angel does. An angel does the bidding. Hebrews says that. That's their job. There are various kinds cherubim, seraphim. There are personalities, there are names. Uh, and they do the bidding of God. And two of them. Names are not mentioned. I believe these are angelic figures. Uh, why two? It was actually embedded in Mosaic Law. They're embedded in New Testament practice. Why two? Because, yes? Say again? Christ. Christ sent the apostles two by two. In uh, Mosaic Law, if you were going to give uh, witness to something, you needed two to confirm. So the number two is very important. Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will come back in the same way you saw him. If I'm to read that literally, how do you read that? What does that mean about the second coming of Christ? What does it say? What does it mean? He's going to come... It's going to come down on a cloud. This is not a movie. Forget movies. What does the biblical text say? <laughs> it says the way he went is the way he was going to come back. Okay, good. All right. Um, I better stop here. Thank you. <laughs>